Good evening. You may be seated. My name is Dean and Sarah, and I am uh, the pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, which is home of the neglected from the playoffs, Florida State University, and the HBCU national champion, Florida A&M University Rattlers. So here's what's been going on in kind of some evangelical, kind of conservative Christianity circles of people my age. I'm 43. Here's what a lot of parents are saying. A lot of parents are saying it's irresponsible for Christian families to send their daughter or son to state colleges or to distinctly not Christian schools. They're going to deconstruct they're going to be thrown to the wolves. They're going to be indoctrinated. They're going to run away from the faith. And I always just have one question for those people. Have you ever heard of the salt company? Have you ever heard of it? And that is why we must plant churches in every collegiate city in America. Are you with me? I went to a Christian college and I loved it. It was a great experience. It really was good for me. I learned a lot about Jesus, prepared for ministry, but I had nowhere near the experience of local church discipleship and clear mission that our salt company in Tallahassee gets to experience. Any public school kids here from high school? Any public school kids? Okay, so when my roommate at a Christian college's parents found out before we got there that their son's roommate went to public high school, they prayed outside our room that I wouldn't do drugs. I don't want to leave anybody out. Where's our Christian high school kids? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. You got kicked out of public school because you did drugs. Let's be real. Let's be real. And again, we're, we want to include everybody. The wall of hostility has been torn down, as Rob told us. Where's my homeschoolers at? Hey, you're the ones who will be doing drugs when you're 40. Let's be real. So here we are. We are three chapters into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and so far he's proclaimed some powerful truths to the believers there. I mean, imagine being these people who have gone through persecution. They've had a wall of hostility, like Rob talked about earlier. They've been marginalized. They've received injustices. And here Paul comes with this letter to the church, and imagine being them and receiving this, and we're told that God in chapter one has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that he has chosen us in Christ that he has predestined us, that he has adopted us into his family, that he has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, that God has forgiven our sins. Paul's just cranking it out through his letter. Imagine the worship they're experiencing and hearing this amazing news. The gospel is good news. The good news when Jesus Christ has come to do for sinners through his substitutionary death and resurrection. He told them we have an inheritance. He just keeps going. Jesus is far above every ruler and authority and has power and dominion over everything. But he's subjected everything under his feet. As Icky talked about last night in chapter two, we were spiritually dead. Now we've been made alive in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our works, so nobody can boast. We are God's workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. And when you read that letter, you're like, wow, isn't this amazing? We've been persecuted. We've been marginalized. There's been hostility. And now we're hearing these two chapters of amazing news, and they're probably going, are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods? Are we in the clear yet? Are we in the clear yet? Are we in the clear yet? Good. And now, here's what Paul busts out in chapter three. It's like the ultimate womp womp of the Bible. It's like the story of the Iowa Hawkeyes offense. Womp womp. I will not get asked back, but I'm gonna go out the blaze of glory, baby. So he says this in chapter three, verse one. After all those amazing truths, and they're going, this is incredible. Maybe you're out of the woods. Maybe you're in the clear. And Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, and it's not metaphoric, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Like, wait, time out. What did you just say? How do we go from the amazing chapters one and two to chapter three, verse one? Paul's in prison? Did he just kind of overhype everything here in chapters one and two? Is there apparent defeat here? Did he exaggerate? Is our position in Christ good, but maybe not that good? I mean, how does Jesus rule and reign, and how can we trust his promises if people suffer? At the hands of the world, our leader, Paul, is imprisoned. He's likely in chains. And what's gonna happen here is Paul's gonna take a slight diversion. And almost all commentators agree it's what he does here in chapter three. Takes a little side street from the flow of Ephesians to help us see what is really happening here. Skip down to 13 and we'll work back. He says, so then, I ask you not to be discouraged. It's like, bro, how can we not be discouraged? You're Paul. You're in prison. But he says, don't be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf. On our behalf. What are you talking about? You're trying to make us feel better? He says, for they, these afflictions, this imprisonment, you know what it's for? They're for your glory. So here Paul may be in chains and he may be in prison, but he wants the church in Ephesus and all believers who read the inspired and errant word of God for all of history to see and understand that the gospel is not hindered and that Christ absolutely does rule, even when the world seems to have the upper hand. John Piper, shout out to you gophers who are here, Minneapolis, wrote this, that God has chosen that some of his servants be imprisoned and suffer as a way of bringing about God's cosmic purpose to manifest his wisdom. In other words, God is doing something here through this, through Paul's imprisonment. And Paul wants them to see. He wants these believers to know the ones who've been saved by grace through faith, who've received every spiritual blessing, who've been adopted into God's family, who worship the one who tears down the walls of hostility. He wants them to see the sovereignty of God, the rule and the reign of God over all things, and also God's goodness 
in the uncertainty. Because the God who saved us, chapters one and two, is also the God that sustains us for his glory and for his plan. He reigns and he rules. And he is working out his plan just as he has promised throughout the entire scriptures. And Paul reminds us out of the gate in chapter three what he's called to do. First, he's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his calling. The unsearchable, deep riches of what it means to know and be known by Jesus. And second, to make known, we don't keep this gospel to ourselves, to make known the mysterious plan of God hidden for ages. So let's read chapters one, or excuse me, verses one through nine. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard about this, I'm sure word's gotten out that I'm in jail, haven't you? But not that more about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. The mystery, what a strange word there to see in the Bible, like I'm just to know these things, there's still mysteries, what's he talking about here? Was made known to me by revelation that God has spoken through the writers of the Bible to make his word known to us as I have briefly, briefly written about above. My, by reading this, you were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles, and Rob did an awesome job, tell us about them this morning. Us, our story. They're co-heirs. They're members of the same body. And if you're a Jewish audience, you're going, that's wild. Jesus really is that powerful. And they're partners. So not just part of your family. Now we're doing ministry together. What a wild tearing down of hostility. They're partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse seven, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints. I wasn't deserving at all. Paul's resume, he persecuted Christians. He oversaw murders of believers. He wanted the church to stop going forward. And this grace of God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners, die in our place, live the life that we failed to live, that died a death that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. I am the example of the least of these and he's shown his grace to me. But why has he done it? Because he loves me and he wants to save me? Yes, but there's more. To proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light, light where? In darkness. To shed light for all, to every tongue and tribe and nation about the administration of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. What is he, that's pretty wordy, pretty hard text to grasp. Thank you whoever gave it to me, by the way. I'm not speaking to you. But here we are, but it's so rich and it's so important, and I hope that by God's grace it unlocks for you and you see what God's doing here. It wound up being my favorite passage in Ephesians before I got done, by the time I got done with it. All the promises of God made in the Old Testament are understood as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they belong to his people, past, present, and future. Second Corinthians 1.20, for every one of God's promises, his actual biblical promises, one he has made to us through his words, is yes in him. 
Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Why do we say amen, and why do we say the glory of God? Because we worship a God who has saved us, because he loves us, and because he has kept his word that he will redeem a people to himself. And everyone in this room who knows Jesus, you're counted in that. How incredible is that? Do you see why we call the gospel good news? He has met his promises in Jesus Christ. That since eternity passed, I know my mind can't grasp that, I'm sure yours can't either, the plan of God always included Jews and Gentiles sharing in membership of the same body. Verse six. This was not a plan B. This wasn't, oh man, that didn't work, let's try something new. Neither Gentile inclusion in the church nor the church itself is an afterthought of God. It is in Christ that God's purposes have been made known. The savior of all people, The mystery part is that the Messiah was promised over generations and generations and different signs pointed to his eventual coming, the sacrificial system where you were separated from God, reminded of your sin, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So once a year on the day of atonement, you're gonna take your sacrifice, your offering to a priest who then make that offering for you because you couldn't go to God yourself. So there were signs, there were things pointing to us that one day God was going to do something to eliminate the need for a priest and for an animal sacrifice because we would have the ultimate high priest who would go and give his life as a sacrifice. So the wall of hostility between us and God has now been torn down. But in other words, it hadn't been revealed yet to these people. In other words, again, Christmas hadn't happened yet. There wasn't a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, but there were generations of people who were looking for it to come one day. They didn't know all the details. They didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, but they held on to the promises of God that he was going to keep his word and that one day he would ultimately redeem a people to himself. Augustine wrote this, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. And the plan of God for the Gentiles, for us, non-Jewish people, is unveiled and the mystery is now made known and declared in the establishment of the church. The establishment of the church, which is not a plan B, it is a plan A, and God's design for his people to be included and a part of. He says this in verse 10, this is so, as there's a reason for all this, that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known. There's no more mystery. He has made it known in Jesus Christ. But look at how he continues the sentence. Made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. And I love verse 11. This is according to his eternal purpose, as in God's plan from the beginning and for all time, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've heard this illustration told before. I didn't make this up or come up with it. It's been passed down. Picture in your mind a great wise painter painting on a huge canvas with many brushes, most of them very ordinary and messy. The painter is God. So you really actually can't literally picture him because he's invisible, but he intends for his painting to be the visible display of his wisdom. 
He knows people can't see him, but he wants his wisdom to be seen and admired. He wants glory. He wants worship. His canvas is huge. It's the size of the created universe. And God is painting with thousands and thousands of colors and shades and textures, a picture as big as the universe and as old as creation and as lasting as eternity. A picture that we call history with the central drama being the preparation, salvation, and formation of the church of Jesus Christ. And he is using thousands of different brushes, most of them very ordinary and very small, because every minute detail is crucial in this painting to display the wisdom of the painter. And these brushes are God's missionaries. In other words, those brushes are all of us. They're all of you. That God is using the church. The people who possess the good news of Jesus Christ. The mysteries understood to proclaim his goodness and his glory to all the world in different ways, in different forms, in different giftings. But one message, and that is that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. God was working then when Paul was in prison. And we can believe because of that, he is absolutely still working now. He was working then. And you better believe he is working now. The world's hostile persecution of Christians, some worse, much worse than we have here in the United States, but here we have other versions. Marginalizing believers, keeping churches off campus, the mistreatment of believers, falsely judging you and accusing you, putting words in your mouth, making bad assumptions about you. Believe it or not, what Paul is saying here is it only serves to expand the church. It is for glory. Tertullian, the early church founder, says this, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. As in you do whatever you need to do, because since we're people who know that God keeps his promises, and the mystery has been revealed, we're going to love you anyways. And we're going to pray for those who persecute us. And we're not going to back down with the greatest story that's ever been told because we know it is true. Do what you got to do. As Icky said last night, we're with him. And he is the one who continues to make all things new. But we're never out of the woods. We're never in the clear this side of heaven. But we know that the one who was promised has already come and lived a perfect life that we failed to live. He died on a cross, which was his original mission in the first place. When the angel appeared to Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. Did he come to teach us lessons? Sure, of course he did. Did he come to help the, the poor and the oppressed? Of course he did. But be not mistaken and please be clear. The number one by a mile reason he came was to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he rose from the grave three days later, proving once and for all he was the exact one that he claimed to be. 
You see, Paul's calling is our calling. You see, all are under the curse of sin and need the power of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to free us, to break the curse, to reconcile us to God. This great curse of sin exists everywhere. So the goal of the Great Commission, Jesus' call for the church to go and make disciples, to baptize people, to teach them all that Christ has commanded, is that people everywhere would hear the message of Christ and be rescued from the curse of sin. And he says in verse 11, this is according, as that he's been working this out since before we can fathom time, the eternal purpose accomplished by Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, in him, not in ourselves. Here's the response to this, in him. We have boldness and confident access through faith in him. He says, so then, here I am writing from prison. Because of all this I just wrote to you, this little side street I went down, don't be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Notice in verse 1, he didn't say I'm a prisoner of the state or of the religious people. He said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. As in there's nothing happening to me that God isn't working out and ordaining and being used for his glory. I'm here because I belong to Jesus. So what is our boldness based on? Trying to win an argument? One up somebody? Be a jerk? Some kind of ego stroke? No, our boldness is based on the fact that God keeps his promises. That's what it's based on, that we are a convinced people because the mystery of God that had been promised for generations didn't go off into oblivion. It was fulfilled and understood in the coming life, work, and death, and ascension, and one day coming again work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, my afflictions are for your glory, that what you experience on campus is for the glory of the church. It's for the glory of God. That God's great story of Christ redeeming people continues to be revealed, but the main story we already have is complete. And we can live in confidence because God always keeps his word. And the one thing we're still waiting for is for Christ to return and make all things new. Back to chapter 1, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So we will, that we who already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Salt Company, all of God's promises to you have been answered yes in Jesus Christ. What gets us in trouble is when we, get, we ascribe promises to God that he never made. God has never promised in his word that you'll stay out of prison. He says he'll free you from spiritual prison. God never said that you won't get sick. He tells us he came to free us and heal us, the great physician, from spiritual sickness. You know what happens in a kind of Instagram Christian influencer culture is maybe that even, I don't think it's malicious or anything. We assign promises to God that he never made that only make sense in an affluent Western culture. And then when things don't work out like we think they should, we blame God and think he's forgotten about us. 
And Paul's saying in Ephesians 3, he has not forgotten about us. In fact, everything he has said and promised has come true in Jesus, so be bold because of that. That that's the answer. That that's the truth. That here's what he's doing. That he's with you right now. And the God who was working then, and it's the God who was working right now. Incredible that our UNLV plan hasn't even happened yet. And we have people from UNLV who are here already. <laughs> Had he had the courage to plant a church in a city that all the rest of us in the East Coast think is scary? Because you have the promises of God. Where's my Syracuse folks at? I know y'all have not had the easiest road on campus. But you know what you have? The promises of God. So love anyways, be the church anyways, persevere anyways, be bold because God keeps his promises, his mysteries been revealed, and you have them in Christ. I'm a, I'm a really nervous flyer. I mean, here I am, I'm talking about the sovereignty of God, right? It's like when it's in your head but not in your heart, that's me flying. So, I mean, I'm like, you know, I, I go Catholic all of a sudden and do this or in turbulence. I mean, like, like, all, like all, I'm like, go Notre Dame football. Like, all, all those things are happening during that moment. Who cheered? Notre Dame football, come on. Okay, yeah, yeah so. And so I'm flying to New Orleans uh, for our network of churches gathering. Uh, we're a part of a network of churches. I do most of my uh, things with them through what's called the Send Network, which is the most awesome thing going in all of North American church planning that partners with the Salt Company. Y'all give a shout out to the Send Network and thank them for being on board with us and what's happening. Vance Pittman's running that. It's the real deal. He's here he's supporting us, being excited about what's happening here. So I get real chatty on a plane when the turbulence happens. It just kind of helps me feel better. I just talk about anything under the sun. And I'll just be like, you know, praying for the person next to me, sharing Jesus with them. I don't do that at all. I'm like just freaking out. So when turbulence, I should like when turbulence happens, turn to the guy next to me and go, so, you know what's really turbulent? You want to trust in Jesus right now before we go down? You know, that kind of thing. But, but, I, but I, I, don't, I don't do that. So one time I'm talking to this guy going to New Orleans, and he has, I mean, this like beast of a bold green cross tattoo on his forearm. And he had his headphones on, did not want to talk to me. He sees me grabbing the armrest. He's like, what a freak, you know, like all, all that kind of stuff. And like he probably ate paint chips as a kid, you know, so they you know, tied the pub, all that kind of stuff. So, but I had to talk to him because it's turbulent. So I, so I kind of nudge him. And it's like a legit, like big tattoo, like real deal. This is not like I wanted to feel edgy and I got a Christian fish that big on my foot. So I'm from Iowa and want to try to pretend I'm hard and not a farmer. You know, that, that kind of thing, you know, like, it's like, you know. You know it's, it's, not, it's not that kind of, it's, it's like legit, like bold cross tattoo. A tattoo of a cross on his forearm. I'm like, wow. But he's going to New Orleans, so I'm like, maybe he's Catholic. Because like everybody in New Orleans is Catholic. So we're getting a little bumpy and I go, excuse me. He's like, what? It's like the 10th time you've asked me something. I said, I noticed your, uh, your cross tattoo. And he's like, you have eyes, you know, that kind of thing. And he said, congratulations, buddy. And I said, are you Catholic? I'm just trying to die to start a conversation here. Are, are you Catholic? And you think I'd ask that as some like missionary purpose? Not the purpose at all, I'm just freaking out, okay? So I said, are you Catholic? He goes, oh no, man. He just laughed, he goes, I'm nothing. Nothing? You're the biggest cross tattoo I have ever seen in my entire life. 
This is not some random tattoo. We have no idea what it means. You just got it one night because you're in Panama City on spring break. What else do you do? I mean, that kind of thing. It was like bold. And I said, okay. I said, well, do you mind telling me about it? And he laughed. He goes, yeah. I was on Bourbon Street one night, and I woke up the next day. I was hungover, and I you know, passed out drunk, and I had this tattoo on my forearm. And I'm like, who was the tattoo artist? It's like, passed out drunk guy, give me a big cross on my forearm, right? So I just kind of went back to my business. He tells me he's nothing, and he has this amazing, huge, bold cross tattoo on his forearm because he was passed out and doesn't remember it. So I'm like, okay, now I got to say something to him. I'm like, I'm a hypocrite about my faith and want to share the truth. And I wasn't ready yet. So I just kind of walked in, you know, said my prayers, crossed myself, 17 Hail Marys, all the things. And <laughs> confessed my sins. Prescribed promises to God he never made. You know, th- things like that. And uh, so I, I finally landed. The plane landed, so I knew I wasn't going to die. And at least between then and the gate. And I said... I said, hey, man, this guy told me he was nothing. I just said, how cool that you don't even know why you got this tattoo. And every single time you look down on it, you get reminded of what Jesus came to do for you. Every time you look at it. And he was like, huh, my grandpa was a Christian. I was like, okay, let's start talking. Here we go. (laughs) We must lock in on the story of God's mystery revealed in Jesus Christ and stare at a figurative tattoo on our arm of the cross of Jesus because we're in a discouraging, broken world and God never promised us it would be anything but that. But what he did promise us is that heaven's a real place where real people go. And we are in his family and that no one can take his sheep out of the grip of his hands. And that one day, one day, he will return to make all things new. And it's easy to go, man, it's been a long time. It's been over 2,000 years. And it's kind of apathetic about it. Yeah, we believe intellectually that Christ is coming back one day. But like, is that really going to happen? Here's how we know it's going to happen. Because all of his promises are yes in Jesus Christ. As my grandpa used to say, you can bet your sweet potatoes. I don't know what that means, but he would say that. You can bet your sweet potatoes that one day Jesus is coming back. Lock in on his promise fulfilled and the cross and resurrection, anytime you're discouraged, anytime you want to quit, anytime you want to trust in your own righteousness, anytime you get too big for your britches, get on your Pharisee judgmental high horse, look to the cross and be reminded. We must be bold in Christ because we have the promises of God. Not just bold in our faith. Something you need to be bold in your decision because you've heard the stories this week You've been loved by your salt company for months, but you won't make a decision for Christ because you're scared of what it's going to mean. It might mean that relationship, that person you're dating might have to end. Might mean the way you see yourself and your identity might get flipped upside down. It might mean you have to actually start following Jesus rather than just seeing it as a hobby or a good luck charm or a moral compass. You can be bold in making real decisions to follow Christ and stop living in fear of what they're going to say out there because they are trusting in a world that is temporary. You're trusting in a God who is eternal and is keeping his promise since the beginning of time. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. 
My math class my senior year of high school was called math. <laughs> hey, Michigan State students, don't act like that's not you. <laughs> Hey, 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 hey. Hey, here's what I know, here's what I know. There's one thing that all Michigan and Michigan State students have in common, they all got into Michigan State. That's all, that's all I know. So I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, I promise you. But I'm gonna go with the one who makes and keeps his promises perfectly since eternity every single time, and I hope you will too. Leslie Newbegin, the great missionary to the West, who was begging people to see the West as a mission field. He wrote this, who will be the missionaries to this culture? Who will it be? No one's more primed to the answer to that question than you. Who will be the missionaries? He's basically taking Luke 10, 2 and putting another question on top of it. Who's going to be the fulfillment of this prayer answered? He adds, who will confront this culture of ours with a claim of absolute truth, the claim that Jesus Christ is the truth? You hold the answer to the mystery revealed. You understand the love of God because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Who's going to be the missionaries? Paul says, these things that are happening to me is to fuel it. Because now you realize that the gospel and the church that Jesus is building cannot be stopped. Because it's God's design and God's plan and God's doing, not ours. I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, there's a song we used to sing at church. And I've been thinking about it ever since I started writing this message. Why can you be bold? Why can you be fearless? Why can you endure even when you're discouraged? Because he stays the same through the ages. His love never changes. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And when, when those oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. How do I know he loves me? Because Jesus is the evidence of that. So in the meantime, you know what he's doing this side of heaven? He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, as in all believers from past, present, and future, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be proclaimed the first among many brothers. Oh, and he keeps going. Those he predestined, his working out, his plan, he called. He brought you to himself. And those he called, he justified. As in he declared them to be not guilty of their sins because Jesus who never sinned stood guilty in their place. And those he justified were promised one day he will glorify as in new heavens and new earth where we are with him forever as all the promises are fulfilled once and for all. And what does he say in verse 31? He says, what do we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are a grateful people because we are those, like Paul, the least deserving, who have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ.
So Lord, I ask that you open the eyes and the minds and the ears and the hearts of everyone in this room, staff members to students, that they will, even though they might already be believers, grasp the amazing truth that you are the God who has been working out your saving, sovereign purposes from the beginning of time for your glory, and we get to be a part of that. Lord, let us not be discouraged. Lord, let us look to the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we ask you to forgive our sins, that we will be loving to others because you have been so loving to us. Those who are afraid to trust in you, even though they are feeling your love and maybe even believe the gospel in their minds, they, they know that you're bringing them to yourself. Lord, I ask that they will surrender to you because they know that unlike this world that's passing away, away, you are the God who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Lord, we are dependent people on you. We love this network. We thank God for you. We thank you for it, Lord our God. We thank you for it. We get excited about it. We're proud of it. Lord, we acknowledge without you, the one who's working without history, throughout history, none of this means a thing. If we're left on our own, we will fail miserably. But because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, the one who has been promised that you brought this good news of the gospel, the mystery revealed from the beginning of time to Gentiles like us, let us respond to that good news by saying, Jesus, here's our lives. We trust in you, that you're worth it. We're not good at keeping our promises. You are perfect at keeping yours. So we, as a network of churches, as brothers and sisters united in Christ from the churches across the country, we believe that you have planted. We declare that you so love the world that you gave your only son. So who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, Lord for carrying out your plan and from imprisonment to persecution to injustice that nothing can stop the fact that you have predestined and called and justified and will glorify your people for yourself in the name of Jesus. Let us believe it together and worship you as a result. And it is in the great name of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises, the one in whom every promise is answered yes in him that we pray together. Amen. Amen.